Good morning, church. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We are going to be focusing on verses 13 through 21. The topic today is greed and generosity. We live in the most affluent society in human history and one of the most self-absorbed societies in human history. It is easy to fall into the age of the culture, but we must be on guard against greed and train ourselves in generosity. This is no new topic in human history, and it is something we see Jesus address in Luke chapter 12. At this time in Jesus' ministry, the crowds were coming to him in droves. And in Luke 12:1, it says, So many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. And in the midst of this stampeding crowd, Jesus begins to teach. And he warns of the leaven of the Pharisees. He teaches not to fear men, but to fear God. That if someone denies Jesus, they will be denied before the Father. And he preaches that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So Jesus is in the middle of a deep teaching session when someone in the crowd interjects himself into the conversation, which will be the focus of our time this morning. The title of this sermon is, Are You Rich Toward God or Are You Rich Toward Yourself? And I've outlined Luke 12, 13 through 21 with five points. Complaint, covetousness, crops, consumption, and condemnation. So look with me in your Bibles at Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, we see our first point in verses, uh, in verse 13, the complaint. Jesus is giving the crowds teaching like, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Do not fear those who can kill uh, the body only, but fear him who has authority to cast into hell. The one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Some pretty serious stuff. And then in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. A guy in the crowd pipes up like, Yeah, your teachings are cool and all. But teacher, rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's quite revealing that the man would ask this question in this context. You can see the pretentiousness of the man. 
and his self-absorption and self-centeredness is on display already. All the stuff about the kingdom of God, hell, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that's all nice. But you really need to tell my brother to give me more money. Give me the inheritance. And have you ever been in a serious conversation with someone and someone else comes up and interrupts your conversation just to talk about nonsense? That's about the gist of what's going on here. It is likely that this man's older brother got twice the allotment that he did, as it is lawful for the firstborn to get twice the inheritance of uh, his younger brothers. Cases of dispute were often brought to and settled by rabbis in that day. So this man sees Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, and sees Jesus as a means to an end to get his hands on more of the inheritance. And notice, he doesn't come to Jesus and ask if he would just hear the case from both parties and make a ruling on objective facts. No. He makes a demand for Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. He's not coming to Jesus to, uh, for Jesus to decide uh, the case on the merit of two claims. He comes to Jesus, Jesus with his own one-sided story, and he's demanding Jesus to rule in his favor. And Jesus responds to this man's complaint not warmly at all. In verse 14, he says, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He calls him man. That's not a warm and welcoming address. That's the way you would address a stranger, someone you aren't friends with or not acquainted with. It's a term of distance. And in verse 4 of this chapter, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you my friends. Well, here Jesus is not so endearing. Man. Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus ain't no fool, and he's not going to be a pawn in someone else's scheme. Jesus has no obligation to hear this man's case or to make any ruling, and he's not about to get drugged into the mire. And whether the man was truly defrauded or he was trying to defraud his brother, the text doesn't really indicate. But what the text does indicate is that Jesus perceives the heart of this man. And gives him truth far more valuable than any inheritance. You think your brother is your problem? Let me warn you of something more important than your complaint against your brother. And that leads us to our second point, covetousness. Look with me at verse 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus isn't shy, is he? Jesus hears one sentence from this dude and immediately warns the entire crowd to beware of all covetousness, all forms of greed. His discernment is flawless. And he gets right to the heart of the matter. Has anyone ever come to you with a concern or a problem that they want you to help them with? And very quickly, you realize the problem that they are asking for help with is so secondary to the heart of the issue. They're focused on a certain problem that is just a result of a much deeper-rooted issue. And many times, they resist the counsel that addresses the heart of the matter. They only want you to side with them or to focus on the secondary issues they are fixated on. Sometimes people are so wrapped up in, their, in themselves and their own nonsense that they are blinded to the real issues at hand. And Jesus isn't one for beating around the bush. 
he flushes out the problem at hand. Beware, be active, and be intentional in guarding against this foe, greed. The word here is translated as greed or covetousness, and both translations are good. Covetousness is more specifically desiring what someone else has, like your brother's inheritance. And greed is a general desire for more, even if you already have some of what you desire more of, like the inheritance, right? He, had a, he probably got a portion of the inheritance, but his brother got more. So there are different forms of greed, but greed is always a selfish want for something. It's always a desire for something more. Jesus knows the inclinations of the human heart. And just as he warned of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy earlier in the chapter, he now warns against all forms of greed, which includes covetousness. And greed is in opposition to gratitude. A greedy heart is not a thankful heart. Greed is not grateful and is not satisfied in what God has given. It's a longing for what God has withheld. And greed is selfish and a form of self-idolatry. Greed and covetousness, they're not only a rich man's problem, it's an every man's problem. A homeless crackhead greedy to score enough money to buy his next high can be just as greedy as a multi-billionaire pursuing his next billion. Just because you might not be the richest person you know, don't think for a second you are immune from the sin of greed. Jesus says that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your possessions and wealth are not your life. And if you become consumed with the pursuit of, of abundant possessions, you will lose your life. As Jesus says in Mark 8:36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? One day you will die. And what will be left if you spent your whole life in pursuit of selfish gain. Jesus senses the danger of this in the man and warns the man and the whole crowd to be on active guard against this kind of sin. He then gives a parable to illustrate his point. And that will lead us to our third point, crops. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So we see the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with owning land? No. Anything wrong with being rich? No. Anything wrong with producing plentifully? No. We emphasize that here at, at Maynardville Fellowship. Work hard. Be productive. Take dominion. Is money evil? No. The love of money is evil. Is being wealthy wrong? No. God is the wealthiest in all the universe, and He has made many godly men wealthy. So this is not a sermon against wealth, hard work, or productivity. We believe work is good and God-ordained. 
Sometimes we think of work as a negative thing, as if it's a result of the fall. But there is work before the fall, and it is good. We are created to work. We are to image God in our work. Because God works, and there will be work in the eternal state. We are not getting away from work. And God has designed His world in such a way that in general, hard work pays off. There is reward for good work. Proverbs 22:29 states, Do you see a, a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. A man skillful in his work will be lifted up. In other words, cream rises to the top. A skillful man who is self-disciplined and hardworking in general will be successful. And Proverbs 12:24 says the hand of the diligent will rule while while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Here you see the contrast of the diligent and the slothful. The diligent will rise to the top and the slothful will sink to the bottom. How many hard-working, disciplined, responsible people do you know that are living in poverty? Probably not many. We are called to be good stewards of what God has given us. And being a good steward means we are excellent in our work and multiply what we are given. We are all given the uh, the same amount of time in a day. And we are to maximize our time. We aren't called to be sluggards or procrastinators. We are called to be diligent and faithful with everything God has given us. In the parable of the talents... A master gives three servants a certain amount of wealth, each according to their own ability. One man was given five talents and made five talents more. One man was given two talents and made two talents more. One man received one talent and did nothing with it, so he had no return at all for his master. And the master, furious, calls the man wicked and slothful and takes the one talent away from the man and gives the one talent to who? The man who had ten talents. And the worthless servant is cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Good stewards are given more and slothful servants are cast into hell. The world would say that the guy with ten talents should be made to give his talents to the other servants with less talents so that there is wealth equality. But in God's economy, the faithful will be given more and the slothful will be stripped. The parable is telling us more than just about money and physical wealth, but it does include money and physical wealth. We believe in all of Christ for all of life. And then in every area of our lives, the general principle is true that the faithful will be given much and the slothful will not be rewarded. So in Luke 12, 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And we have no problem with that. We love production. He sees the bountiful crop. And in verse 17, he thinks to himself, What am I going to do? I don't have anywhere to store a harvest this big. And in verse 18, he decides he will tear down his old barns and build bigger barns to store his crops. What is the man's immediate response when he sees the harvest? He immediately turns inward. What am I going to do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. So that same self-absorption and self-centeredness we sense from the man in the crowd 
we begin to sense with the, with the rich man in the parable. His first thought was it to thank God for the crops. You know, God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who provides the seed, the ground, the sunshine, uh, the rain that brings forth the crops. Doesn't seem to be on his mind at all to thank God. He immediately turns inward. But maybe we're just jumping the gun here. Maybe he's just worried about storing the crops and he's planning on doing something really generous with it. Maybe he will give thanks to God and be generous with his crops. Well, let's look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. The intentions of his heart remain selfish. Eleven times the man says, I or my, in verses 17 through 19. And now he says to his soul that he has ample goods for many years. Kick back, relax, eat, drink, be merry. He was self-centered the entire time and he uses his wealth to feed his flesh in comfort and ease. More riches often expose the sinful inclinations of the heart even more. The movement of money is the movement of your heart. What you value, what you cherish, what you desire, there you will spend your time and money. Our finances show what we value. And that is in the negative, and that is in the positive also. It reveals a generous heart, and it can reveal a selfish heart. It's pretty apparent uh, where a person's heart is and what they choose to invest in. You should self-evaluate where your money is going. Because you might be blind to your own idolatry. And an objective evaluation of where your money is going can indicate to you where your heart is at. Do self-inventory. Evaluate your bank statement each month. See if it's in balance. Evaluate how you are spending your time. Examine what is on your lips, what is in your conversation. Because out uh, of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Are you indulging in yourself? Or are you stewarding your wealth in the pursuit of the kingdom of God? Are you seeking your own selfish gain, your own status, your own glory, your own comfort, your own entertainment, your own stuff? Your boast should be in God, not your stuff. How we manage wealth is a barometer of our hearts. You are telling God and others who you are by what you do with your money. Are we being good stewards of the gift God has given us? Or are we being self-centered, indulgent fools who just want to kick back and be consumers of the gifts we have received? Comfort and ease are enemies of productive stewardship. We live in a, an affluent society, and as a church, God has blessed us with some measure of wealth. And we hear the line of thought all the time that bad times create hard men, hard men create good times, good times create soft men, and soft men create bad times. Soft, overindulgent, self-seeking men squander the blessings they have been given. And like the wicked, slothful servant who did nothing with his master's talent, they will be cut off from the land. 
Wealth can magnify the traits of a simple heart, and wealth can lull us into a false sense of security. We become inclined to view ourselves as self-sufficient. We've got enough crops in the barn or money in the bank to sit back and indulge in our success. And that's really uh, what most Americans spend their careers pursuing, right? Accumulate enough wealth so that by the time you're, you know, 64, you have enough to retire, finally relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But you won't find this view of retirement in Scripture. Eddie Ballard has recently retired from his job. But as me and him were talking the other day, he hasn't retired from work. He's still working, and he still has much work to do. And he's going to use this new season of life to continue to work for the kingdom of God, to use his time and ability to serve the people of God. He's not viewing this as a, as a season to be self-indulgent in luxury. It's hard to keep up with the demands of a greedy heart. A greedy heart wants more of something. More money, more entertainment, more comfort, more luxury, more something. A greedy heart is not a good steward. Many times a person inclined to self-indulgence and luxury cannot keep pace with the appetites of their flesh. They outspend their ability to keep up with their self-indulgent appetites. Possessions possess them. Why do you think America is a culture of debt? Because we are a culture of greed and luxury. There are millions of Americans with hefty incomes that are underwater in debt because they can't make enough to keep up with their wants. You become a slave to your greed. And your greed makes you a slave to lenders. It makes you a slave to the world. Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower is slave to the lender. And at this point, you're compromised and enslaved to a system that controls you. You have to play by their rules. Live up to their demands and their standard of righteousness because you have sold yourself to them. You are in bondage to them. We preach not to be dependent on the world. And that's exactly where greed will lead you to. So entangled in the world system, you don't even know how to get out of it. And not all versions of greed are always wanting more and more money. There is a version of greed that wants to get just enough wealth so that the person can coast. It might not even be an extravagant lifestyle by the world's standards, but it is just as self-centered. They get enough wealth to kick back and sit around and squander the wealth that they have stored. Work as little as possible, just enough to sit back, indulge, and be entertained. That's more the version of greed that we find in the rich farmer here. He wasn't even concerned in multiplying his new wealth to accumulate more wealth. He was content to sit back and relax with the wealth sitting in his barn. So no matter the flavor of greed, it's pretty much impossible to trust a greedy person. Except for the fact you can trust them to be greedy. A greedy person is a sellout to his desires. What kind of person betrayed Jesus? Judas, who was close disciple to Jesus for three years. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Greed led Judas to betray the eternal treasure of heaven for a few pieces of metal. And it brought him to destruction. Greed is a blinding, toxic, deadly sin that leads to ruin. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Beware of the desire to be rich toward yourself. The love of money and earthly possessions is a path to hell. And the rich farmer, he planned to relax, eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of his life. He's having this internal monologue. What am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to, to build bigger barns, and I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy it all. But God interrupts his self-absorbed monologue. And that leads us to our fifth point of condemnation. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. I think I skipped our fourth point. Our fourth point was consumption. We see the man sit back in consumption in this lifestyle of luxury. And now our fifth point, we see condemnation in verses 20 through 21. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So God gave the farmer a wealthy crop, and the farmer conspired to use it for his own luxury for the rest of his life. But God says, you fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You are plotting for your self-indulgence, but I demand your life this very moment. Was it worth it? What good is it to you now? What a shameful and empty life it is to pursue the abundance of possessions. And you, you know something all greedy people have in common? They die. Hebrews 9, 27 states, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We will all die and be judged. We don't know what moment God requires our souls. And you will stand before God and give an account for every action, for every inaction, for every idle word. Like the parable of the talents, you will give an account for how you stewarded the blessings God has given you. Were you a faithful steward? Were you a selfish fool? Were you a slothful servant? You will stand before God. What were the pursuits of your life? Were you pursuing the kingdom of God or were you pursuing your own kingdom? The possessions you were seeking, how valuable are they when your soul is being tormented in hell? As Jesus says earlier in the chapter, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, has, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. We should have an eternal perspective of our lives and we should view our wealth with consideration of eternity. View your wealth in light of your death. View your wealth in light of your judgment. View your wealth not as your wealth ultimately, but as God's wealth that He has given you to steward for Him. Remember how the foolish farmer asked, Where shall I store my crops? And once he decided to build bigger barns, he said, There I will store my grain and my goods. He would have been much better off 
to view his crops as God's crops and consider what God would have him do with the crops he was given. And some people ask, why do the wicked prosper? Well, ultimately, they don't. Their wealth is not a blessing to them. It's a curse to them and will be used against them at their judgment. And Jesus ends the parable with this clarifying statement. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus concludes that the rich farmer was laying up treasure for himself and was not rich toward God. Why is the farmer called a fool? Not because he was a productive farmer, but because with his God-given riches, he has no indication of being rich toward God. Being rich toward yourself is self-idolatry. So the issue is not the man's fields prospered. The issue was, what did he do with it? And this is the lesson Jesus is giving the man with the complaint and to the crowd. Do not lay up treasure for yourself, but be rich toward God. It's pretty clear what laying treasure up for yourself means. But what does it mean to be rich toward God? This is the only time this exact phrase is found in Scripture. If you are rich toward God, you will not lay earthly treasure up for yourself, and you will not treat your life as if it consists in the abundance of your possession. Being rich toward God is viewing Him with ultimate worth, that He is God, the sustainer of life, the giver of gifts, and the one whom we will give account. As Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive. It's all from God. And we aren't to be fixated on earthly possessions. We do what we are supposed to do as faithful stewards in God's kingdom. And as Jesus says later in this chapter, in verse 31, instead seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. You are a servant in God's economy, managing God's wealth, stewarding it wisely and generously for the sake of His glorious kingdom. God provides His servants with exactly what they need to fulfill their duties to Him. You work with the strength that God gives you, with the opportunity He gives you, in the place He has placed you. And what wealth you do gain, you hold it loosely and are seeking how to use it for the advancement of God's kingdom, knowing He gave it to you to steward and one day give it all back to Him. We image God in our generosity. Does this mean you will never save, never set aside money, never buy and accumulate? Does it mean you are just going to give it all away, drive under the bridge in Knoxville and throw out a suitcase of cash to the homeless people? No. You will give an account for stewarding wealth wisely or foolishly. And there is much reason to save, accumulate, build, and yet be generous and rich toward God the entire way and not lay up treasures for yourself. Proverbs 13.22 tells us that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The rich farmer in our story wasn't even concerned about his offspring. He is worried about his own comfort. And as God said, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man wasn't even concerned or generous towards his own family. Many men sacrifice the future of their children and their grandchildren for their own comfort and pleasure. But a righteous man builds an inheritance and leaves it to his children and his children's children. And guess what? That is being rich toward God. 
Another example of accumulating wealth for the kingdom of God is building godly businesses that create jobs that support families. That's being a good steward and being rich toward God. Whatever it is, wherever God has positioned you and whatever the resources are that He has blessed you with, be kingdom-centered in all your decisions. You move where you see God moving and you act generously with the wealth that God gives you. It's a fine thing to be wealthy, but God must rule your wealth or your wealth will rule you. Saving and accumulating wealth is not the problem, and in fact, in many cases, that is what we should be doing. But the movement of your money shows the movement of your heart. You should be rich towards the people and kingdom of God. Your progeny, your church, your neighbors, your community, your heart disposition should be rich toward God, which means you will be generous to what God is generous to. So the tombstone of the foolish farmer could easily read, Here lay a selfish person. And may that not be what we are remembered for. A Christian is a generous person. A grateful heart is a giving heart. Freely you have received, freely you give. Proverbs 21, 25 and 26 says, The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. The wicked, selfish sluggard craves and craves. He wants and wants, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. That is a mark of a Christian. Where are you holding back where you should be giving? Is your heart in the practice of giving? Are you inwardly focused on me, 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 or are you aware of what's around you? Why do you think God commands giving? Do you think He needs you to give for His purposes to be accomplished? He doesn't need you, but He ordains it because it's a blessing to you, and He is using you as His ordained means to bless others. And He is using it to lead you away from selfishness and make you more aware of opportunities to be generous. God uses generosity to train our hearts for our good and sanctification. Do you think God needs you to drop money in the offering box? Do you think His kingdom is going to crumble if you don't? No, but He has commanded you to give and He is training you to be generous. You need it. If you don't train a muscle, it's going to be weak. Same thing with our spiritual disciplines. If you get out of practice of giving, you will have a harder time letting go. And some people say, well, I can't afford to give to the church. And my response would be, you can't afford not to. Your heart needs it. You need to be in the practice of giving. Giving to your local church is an ordained means that God has given us to help us be actively on guard against every form of greed. You think God wants you uh, to give to the church because He's selfish and He needs it? Give me a break. He wants you to give to the church because He's generous and you need it. It is a gift to give. And I'm not going to bind consciences on the exact amount or percentage you should be giving to the church. I would probably make the case from the Old Testament, Old Testament principles that 10% of your net income is likely a good baseline start. 
But in general, your heart needs to be trained towards generosity, and you need to be accountable for your giving. And no form of generosity should be pharisaical. Oh, look at me, look how much I am giving. Nor should it be arm-twisting you into giving. No, it should be done from a pure heart and not under compulsion. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you sow sparingly, expect to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. You are robbing yourself a blessing when you aren't generous. And God is training us to give, and not just to give, but to give with cheerful hearts. We must give as we have decided in our hearts, not out of force or obligation or under compulsion, but cheerfully. And he's not saying don't give if you are under compulsion. He's saying get rid of the compulsion and give cheerfully. You don't have the excuse of not giving because you feel reluctant or under compulsion. The command here is to repent of that selfish feeling and decide to give cheerfully unto the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver. And it should be the decision of our hearts to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry and the expenses of the church. So as we conclude this morning, how can we not be cheerful givers if we understand what we have been given. For the Christian, Paul says in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He has given us everything we need in Christ, and He sustains us to serve Him with everything we need. And God has been so rich and generous toward us How can we not be rich and generous toward Him? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has held nothing back from us. He has given us His own Son who died on the cross for our sins. And He has saved us and raised us up to the heavenly places with His Son. And He shows the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in His Son. And none of this is because of how good you are. You are undeserving of all of it. It is the gift of God. And those given this gift are His workmanship, created to work in the works He has prepared for us. We must be good stewards of the grace God has given us and walk diligently and generously in the work God has prepared for us. Jesus isn't a hypocrite who doesn't practice what he preaches. He preaches generosity and he embodies the fullness of generosity, laying down his life for the ultimate blessing of his people. 
God has held nothing back from you. Why would you hold anything back from Him? Repent of your greed. Repent of your covetousness. Repent of your pride, idolatry, your self-absorption, your slothfulness, your laziness, your poor stewardship, the unwillingness to give or giving begrudgingly. Repent of, of being rich toward yourself and not being rich toward God. Everything you get... You should want to steward well. Increase it. And lay the increase that God produces through you back at His feet. Our heart should desire to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. As we come to the table this morning, commit in your heart to be rich toward the God who has been so rich toward you. Let us pray. God, we come to you as your people that... We lift up your holy name. You are in the heaven and you do whatever you please. God, you have, uh, it pleases you to bless your people. You have sent your son uh, to redeem us. God, you have given us uh, grace to steward. And we pray, Father, that we are good stewards who are faithful with what you have given us, that we multiply it for your kingdom, that we hold it loosely, that we repent of any greed or covetousness, God, self-absorption that we are holding on to, and we are turned to you and to your kingdom, God. We ask for your grace and mercy this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.